begins like this. You may be seated. It was an era when there was no king in Israel. A Levite living as a stranger in the backwoods hill country of Ephraim got himself a concubine. A woman from Bethlehem in Judah. But she quarreled with him and left, returning to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She was there for four months, the Bible says. Then her husband decided to go after her and try and win her back. The Bible says that he had a servant and a pair of donkeys with him. And when he arrived at her father's house, the girl's father saw him, welcomed him, and made him feel at home. The Bible goes on to say that his father-in-law, the girl's father, pressed him to stay. He stayed with him three days. They feasted, and they drank, and they slept. On the fourth day, they got up at the crack of dawn and got ready to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Look, why don't you strengthen yourself with a hearty breakfast and then, and then you can go. So they sat down and they ate breakfast together. The girl's father said to the man, Come now, be my guest. Won't you stay the night? Make it a, make it a holiday. The man got up to go, but his father-in-law kept after him. So he ended up spending yet another night. On the fifth day, He was again up early, ready to go. The girl's father said, you know, you really need some breakfast. Now, they begin to go back and forth, and the day slipped on as they ate and they drank together. But the man and his wife were finally ready to go. Then his father-in-law, the girl's daddy, said, look, the day's almost gone. Why not? Why not stay the night? There's barely any daylight left. Stay one more night and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow, I promise you, tomorrow you can get an early start and set off for your own place. Verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, but this time the man wasn't willing to spend another night. He got his things ready. He left and he went as far as Jebus, which is in Jerusalem with his pair of saddle donkeys, his concubine and his servant. At Jebus though, the day was nearly gone and the servant said these words to his master. It's late. Let's go into the Jebusite city and and we'll spend the night. But his master said, look, we're not going into any city of foreigners. We'll go into Gibeah, he directed his servant. And he said to him, keep going. Let's go on ahead. We'll spend the night in either Gibeah or Ramah. Verses 14 and 15. So they kept going. As they pressed on, the sun finally left them in the vicinity of Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They left the road there to spend the night at Gibeah. The Levite went and he sat down in the middle of the town square. While he was waiting, no one invited them in to spend the night. Then, late in the evening, an old man came in from his day's work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim and lived temporarily in Gibeah where all the local citizens were Benjamites. When the old man looked up and he saw the traveler in the town square, he said, Where are you going? What's your story? Where are you from? The Levite responded, Well, we're just passing through. 
We're coming from Bethlehem on our way to a remote spot in the hills of Ephraim. And I come from there, but I've just made a trip to Bethlehem in Judah. And look, we're just on our way back home. Unfortunately, nobody has invited us in for the night. Honestly, sir, we we wouldn't be any trouble. We've got food and straw for the donkeys, and we've got bread and wine for the woman. The young man and me, we wouldn't need a thing. And the old man said, it's going to be all right. I'll take care of you. You're not going to spend the night in the town square. And so he took them home, and he fed the donkeys, and they washed up, and they sat down to a good meal. They were relaxed and enjoying themselves when the men of the city, a gang of local hellraisers, all surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. They yelled for the owner of the house, the old man, bring out the man that came to your house. We want to have sex with him. He went out and told them, no, brothers, don't be obscene. This man is my guest. Don't commit this outrage. Listen right here. Look, my virgin daughter and his concubine are here. I'll bring them out for you. Abuse them if you must. But don't do anything so senselessly vile to this man. But the men would not listen. They wouldn't hear what the old man was suggesting. And so finally, the Levite pushed his wife out the door. They raped her repeatedly all night long. Just before dawn, they let her go. And the woman came back and fell at the door of the house where her master was sleeping. When the sun rose, there she was. It was morning. And her master, listen, her master got up and he opened the door to continue his journey. And there she was, his wife, crumpled in a heap at the door, her hands on the threshold. And he said, get up. Let's get going. But there was no answer. It's almost, thank you, Pastor Chad, it's almost an unbelievable story that something like this would even be in the Bible. This is a story that sounds as though it would more likely happen in today's culture, in this modern era. It sounds like something you might see or hear on Fox News or watch on the local news channel. It sounds like something that you might read in USA Today or Newsweek or the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It almost sounds like a suspense movie that many of you would go and see. However, if you look at Judges 19, it almost tries to start out like this beautiful chick flick of a love story. Now, I've been married seven years. I've seen 7,456 and a half chick flicks, I believe. And if you've ever seen a chick flick of a love story, you kind of get the understanding of how these unfold. But this husband and this wife, they separate in this movie. The wife goes back to her daddy because daddy's always right. And there the husband is left alone. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't shave. He doesn't shower. And he's sitting there alone wondering, will his wife ever return? And so one day in this movie, the man stands up and he goes to the mirror in the bathroom and he looks at himself and he says, self, go get your woman. 
So he jumps on this donkey and he makes the trip all the way to the father-in-law's house. And he gets to the house and they negotiate her coming back home. And so then the father-in-law keeps trying to say to him, don't leave, stay another night. The father-in-law probably hated the guy. Don't leave, stay another night. But finally the man made up his mind, look, we've got to get going. We've got to move forward. And on their way home, they, they stop in this town. They've got no place to stay. It's not like today. They can't check into a Holiday Inn Express. They're literally waiting for an invitation for someone to bring them into the house. They're literally sitting in the downtown square when this old man approaches and asks them what their situation is. After hearing what the Levite story is, he then opens up his house and he invites them in to rest. As they're relaxing, and obviously this is where the story really begins to shift, these thugs surround this house. And they begin to beat and pound on the front door. These gangsters are yelling that the Levite come outside, but the old man says no. And instead, the old man attempts to negotiate what they want. He says, don't mess with this man. The Bible says that he said, don't do anything so senselessly vile to this man. And there he offers his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. Now, the husband realizes that these mobs of men are not content with what's being offered. So he realizes the only way for him to have his life sustained is to push his wife out into the crowd. I'm telling you, it's like throwing meat to a pack of wild animals. And the Levite pushes his wife out the door in order to protect himself. He selfishly gives his wife to these men. Well, the Bible says that all night long, this gang raped this woman. I can't imagine the terror and the torment that went through this woman's mind as this gang was so perverse and so disgusting in what they did to her. Almost more unbelievable than him pushing her out the door is that he goes inside and goes back to sleep. The Bible said that he and the old man went and they put their head on a postrepedic pillow and went to sleep. Let me, there's a few words that ha, I have in my mind to describe this man, but not one are appropriate for this morning's sermon. But he is a royal jerk. Can I get an amen? When he got up the next morning, there she was. His bride. Dead. And the Bible says if you can get this mental image that her hands were on the threshold of the door... That she had fought all night long to get back to her master's house because she knew that in the master's house she would be safe. And he woke up the next morning and he walked outside and he looked at his dead wife and he said, get up, we've got to get going. Now, that's what I'm going to preach on in the next 25 minutes or so. But I want to just kind of tell you how the story plays out even further to prove to you this is the sickest story in the entire Bible. When the man realized that the woman was dead, he picked her up and he strapped her on the back of his donkey. 
there they finished their trip home. And immediately when he got home, he took out a knife. There he cut his dead concubine into 12 separate pieces, limb by limb. He cut this woman up into 12 pieces and then he packaged those 12 limbs into separate boxes or packages. The Bible says then that he shipped these body parts throughout all the territory of Israel. Meaning he sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance. Basically, he sent these limbs to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, some of you might be asking... Where in the world is Pastor J.C. going with this terrible story? When I read the story, I'm telling you, just being honest, there are dozens of questions that run through my mind. I'm, I'm being serious. Dozens of questions that run through my mind. But there are four specific questions that I cannot get away from. The first question is this. How? Could a father offer up his own child as a sacrifice to the lust of that perverse mob? How could a daddy offer up his own baby girl to be brutally and physically and sexually molested by those men? How could a dad offer up his kid? How many parents are in the room? Well, the majority of us, uh, many of you know that 17 months ago, the greatest gift that God has ever given me has been this little boy. When all else fails in a message, just show a picture of your cute kid. I'm telling you that I love Lakeland James more than I love anything I could ever imagine. He is, I'll get emotional if we're not careful here. He is the joy of our lives. When this little boy wakes up in the morning and he smiles and he laughs, I think to myself, how could a dad offer up his kid? I'm telling you, I love Lakeland with every fiber in my being. I'm filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, but I will kill you with a capital kill if you try and touch my baby boy. Oh, somebody ought to hear me preach for a minute. I'm telling you, it's more than the spirit of slap that'll come over me. I will kill you with a karate chop, somebody. This is my kid. We went to Chick-fil-A the other day. Kimberly said, take Lakeland to the playground. Lakeland, man, he's, he's a monkey. I'm telling you, the kid is a monkey. We go in there, kids are running around. One little kid came over and kind of nudged Lakeland. I was like, oh, no, you didn't. You want some? The kid was three, but I don't play no games. You know what I'm saying? That's my boy. I, I look at his face. I never understood before we had kids how somebody could say about their own kids, I could just eat him up. I used to think, you need help. But there are times that Lakeland will do something and Kimberly and I look at each other and we're like, oh, I just want to bite his little face. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And then there are other times that he does something. I'm like, boy, I will beat you down, son. <laughs> you know, but I'm telling you, I love Lakeland with everything that I've got. I cannot imagine offering my own child to be physically and sexually violated. Wow. Yet there are too many parents today. I'm about to preach. Somebody ought to help me. 
that are allowing the minds and the hearts of their children, of their sons and daughters to be spiritually raped by this world. Yeah, sure. You may never let anybody physically hurt your kid, but what about spiritually? Oh, somebody better help me, even if you're guilty. Some of you parents have allowed your children to be spiritually raped by the enemy because you will not set guidelines and there are no boundaries in your home. Some of you are more concerned with being the BFF in that relationship, which means best friends forever, than you are for being the parent that God called you to be. Quit trying to be friends with your child and be the parent that God wants you to be to them. Parents have allowed their children to be dragged away by the crowds of peer pressure. Parents have allowed their children to be dragged away by the crowds known as social networking, secular music, and Hollywood. Let me tell you this. If you let your kids listen to that garbage and you let them watch the trash on the TV, you are paying for them to be poisoned. Oh, somebody's not going to help me preach. Some parents don't have a problem if their kids have casual sex. You know, about two months ago, I sat in my office with a parent. They began to tell me that their, their child is now interested in the opposite sex. And in that conversation with the child, the, the son told the mother that he wasn't interested in sleeping around. And the mother applauded him for his choice. But then she said, but when the time comes, you just let me know. And I'll get you whatever you need to make sure that it's safe sex. I'm telling you, I know of dads that make fun of their sons if they're not scoring with their girlfriends. This is youth ministry. I know mothers who have taken their daughters to see the female doctor to get some form of birth control so they don't end up pregnant. They're allowing their children to be dragged away by the enemy. There are parents that don't have a problem with students experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And then some parents will say, well, as long as they do it in my home when I'm there, I'd rather it be done that way than when they're with their friends or when they're alone. Give me a break. There needs to be guidelines. There needs to be boundaries. There needs to be rules. And I'm telling you, if you don't put those things in place, you are allowing the enemy to drag your child away. You are no different than that old man who offered up his daughter. I promise you, I promise you that if you don't put your foot down and say enough is enough, the enemy will steal the soul of your baby. Somebody help me preach. We've got parents that will cover up the sins of their children. Uh, will they prove it, Pastor JC? I will. In my own student ministry, I knew uh, the story of a young boy and a young girl who were making out in the upstairs bedroom of their house. And the mother stood outside of the baby girl's door with her arms folded, waiting so that the dad wouldn't catch them. Hello? I, I, I told you I'd be transparent. I warned you to leave before all this started, so don't get mad at me. I know a story of one of my closest friends in ministry. He's not doing youth ministry anymore. He's doing music. The boyfriend and the girlfriend were having problems in their marriage, or in their relationship, rather. The mom wanted them to get married, okay? So she told the girl, have sex with him so that you end up pregnant. Hello? 
I'm telling you that yes, you may never allow your child to be physically harmed, but what about spiritually? I think it's worse. I know it's worse. And, and then you've got the parents that say, not my kid. <laughs> my, my kid would never do that. My kid would never do this. My kid would never. Let me just be honest with you. You need to wake up from fantasy land, people. Oh, not, not, not my kid. We did a purity series about six years ago before we came on staff at this church. We uh, told the students what was going on. We informed the parents. But in the middle of me speaking, this mom came in and she grabbed her two daughters and all of their friends and they walked out. Well, it was quite a distraction for me. I didn't understand why eight people just left in the middle of my sermon. Am I that bad of a preacher? Hello? So when I talked to the lady after, she said, my kids don't need to know about that sex stuff. They don't need to know about purity and hope. They're not involved with that. And I looked and I said, lady, you are foolish. In middle school now, and I know I've got to hurry, but in middle school now, you get a wristband with a different color. That wristband, depending on the color, indicates how far you're willing to go with the person of the opposite sex in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. I'm telling you, parents, that you need to place some guidelines and you need to place some boundaries. What I'm telling you is, is that you need to adopt Joshua 24:15 as your new household motto. For me in this house, we're going to serve the Lord. Uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart last night to say this. You've got one opportunity to raise your child in a godly home. One chance to raise them in a Christian environment. You've got one opportunity to teach your child to know the ways of the Lord. One chance. By the time they're 12, two-thirds of that opportunity is gone. You've got one opportunity to raise your child to know the truth. But instead, when your child does something wrong and you finally decide to put your foot down, what you do is you ground them from church. I'm talking, I have more kids say to me, well... They can't come. They're grounded. From church? You've grounded them from church? Let me just be honest with you. If your child is struggling and in trouble, why would you restrict them from the one place where the Holy Ghost abides? I'll tell you why. Because we've got parents that think that this is nothing more than a social club. Well, I'm here to inform somebody, I am not a babysitter. I am a shepherd, and I'm filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. Your sons and your daughters need to be in church. Somebody say amen. You don't ground them from the football team. You don't ground them from the cheerleading squad. You don't ground them from the grocery store they work at. You don't ground them from going to school. And all of those things have the right place in the right time. But not one of them is more important than their walk with Jesus. Somebody say amen. <laughs> wow, it's hot. I'm a lot closer to these lights than Pastor Allen is. It's a lot warmer up here. Some of you might say, Pastor JC, your kid's 17 months. Wait till they're a teenager. Then let's talk. You don't have experience raising a teenager in your house. When you get a teenager, 
Then come talk to me about this death at the door. Well, let me just inform you of this. I've been doing student ministry of ten, for 10 years. I've got about 10 years of experience raising children spiritually because of the immature parents that don't do it. And I'm tired of raising your kids. We get phone calls every week. Can you fix my kid? Nope. Counseling sessions weekly. Can you fix my kid? Nope. Only love and the power of the Holy Spirit can fix them. But listen to me before you applaud and then you better erupt in applause. I shouldn't be doing what you're called to do. Your children have their hands on the threshold of this door and the enemy is spiritually molesting them. And you go inside and you put your head down at night and do nothing about it. Let me give you this word of advice. I got three more questions to go in about eight minutes. Every parent in this house needs to hear me. And every young person or single person that will one day be a parent, hear me. Don't you ever, don't you ever offer your child to be violated by the enemy of this world. Don't you do it. The, the second question that I have when I read Judges 19 is how could a husband... Push his wife into that perverse mob. The Bible says in 25 and 26, the verses of Judges 19, but the men wouldn't listen to him. And finally, the Levite pushed his concubine out the door. And the consequence of him pushing her is that they raped her repeatedly all night long. Now, here in the English translation that we read in Judges 19, I honestly believe that it has downplayed a characteristic that might explain why she left that jerk in the first place. I think she knew how he really was. And so she packed her bags and left. Somebody ought to hear me right now. She knew who he really was to the core. And so she packed her stuff and she left. The original text says that the husband had to take her by force. The original text says that he had to overcome her active resistance. Do you know what that means? That means she knew that he was coming for her. And she screamed and she fought and she cried out and she begged and she pleaded. But regardless of all of her efforts, he pushed her out the door. She was innocent. This story proves her to be innocent. And yet she was pushed into what ultimately killed her. The Hebrew verb translated took is known as chazak. And it signifies to seize or to take by force. I want you to know, I talked about my son. I'm going to talk about my wife. Outside of my relationship with Jesus, even more so than Lakeland, there's nobody more important to me than Kimberly. Nobody. I'm confident there are days that I get under her skin. I'm confident there are days that I am intentional about getting under her skin. But Kimberly is a powerful woman of God. It's unfortunate that many of you only know her as the pastor's daughter because she's so much more. She is a Proverbs 31 woman. She is an intercessor. She has a 
passionate desire to see the young ladies of this generation understand who God really is in an intimate and personal way. I love Kimberly with every breath in my lungs. She is the beat of my heart. I should do this more. Kimberly and I have this game plan if the Lord tarries that we want to have a notebook ending to our love story. I don't know if you've ever seen the notebook, but it's one of the 7,500 chick flicks that I saw where in the nursing home they pass away together. Kimberly and I, we, we've talked about that, how wonderful it would be if the Lord tarries, but I believe he's coming back. And that's not just to hype you, but that's just real fact. That we'll lay in a nursing home somewhere with our hands placed inside of the other one's hands. We'll look at each other when her hair is silver and mine is still there and really dark. (laughs) And we'll breathe our last breath. Let me tell you, you need to hear this word because this is where I'm going. I respect Kimberly. I respect my wife. I respect... I respect her because I genuinely love her. There have been times where Kimberly has, you know, I'll just be honest. She emailed me a couple months ago about something that I had said in front of a group of people that she didn't feel was appropriate. And so she sent me an email because she, I don't think there was ever any other time that she had to correct me on something that I had done. And so I emailed her back and I was like, don't you ever email me like this. You come to my face and tell me when I'm wrong. I respect what the Holy Spirit says to you. But I respect her because I genuinely love her. Now, if you remember in Judges 19, verse number 3, the Bible says that the husband decided to go after her to try and persuade her to return to him. We can only guess at his motive. There's no proof in this entire story that suggests that he ever genuinely loved his wife. Her running away shamed him in the eyes of the village and kept her from completing the desires that she was subject to do. Hello. Now, we know that on her part, unfaithfulness wasn't the issue. If she was unfaithful, he wouldn't go and try and get her back. He would go and have her executed. So she wasn't unfaithful. But the story never, ever tells us if he genuinely loved her. What you do need to understand is that in the culture, when Judges 19 was written, that very little value was placed on that of a woman. Men put supreme value on hospitality. You saw that behavior take place when the old man offered his daughter because he was trying to be hospitable to the man. Very little value was on women. Women were considered to just be possessions. And they weren't respected. You know, I see this same behavior of selfishness that's committed by the husband play out in many of your marriages, your relationships, and your friendships for that matter. Let me explain. Because of the lack of genuine love and respect for those that might be close to you in your life. Because you don't genuinely love them. And because you don't genuinely respect them. You have pushed them into sin. Hello. The battery is not dead. Remember the story. He pushed his wife into the mob. Some of you because of the lack of love and respect for those that you consider close. You have pushed them into drinking. Oh, you're out at dinner. Just grab a beer. Just grab a beer. 
Some of you have pushed them into lying. Some of you have pushed people into having an affair. And many of you have pushed people away from God. Somebody help me preach. Yeah, it's okay when we're talking about the children. But now it's the grown-ups' turn. Some of you owe somebody in this room an apology for pushing them into their struggle. I'll just keep preaching. Some of you have taken the innocent by force. They didn't want to have to do anything with your lifestyle, but you pushed them. Even when they resisted, you push them. If you genuinely love and respect somebody, you don't push them further away from God. You pull them higher to the things of God. But here's the reality. Some of you aren't the ones pushing. You're the ones being pushed. If you're around people that are pushing you into doing things you know you shouldn't do, you better cut all ties real quick. Because if you don't get rid of those people that are pushing you into that struggle, they will push you into a lifestyle that will ultimately kill you. They're pushing you. You sit down at the break table at work and they're pushing you. I remember the first time I ever said a cuss word in my entire life. I was in the 11th grade, 11th grade, and there were two girls that I wanted to impress, and every day, we, we, we had class together, every day they would say, JC, say a cuss word, say, say a cuss word, and I wouldn't do it, I would not say, nope, not going to do it, but one day, they pushed me too far. And they pushed me. And I, and I go back to that story because it's almost as if that day I was pushed out the door and the world began to rape me spiritually. I remember that day like it was yesterday when that word came out of my mouth. I, in that moment, I knew the enemy is one. They pushed me into the mob and the world began to devour JC. It took me years, years to find Jesus. And I'm telling you, if people are pushing you, you need to cut ties with them. I, I've got to hurry. Here's the third question. Can I give you this? Thank you. You're my best friend. Number three, why didn't somebody yell rape? Why? Why didn't somebody intervene? This is what I mean. The girl was hopeless. She was helpless. She was defenseless. She was weak. Why didn't somebody yell rape or jump up and down or try and intervene or somebody just run into the crowd and try and save her? They knew that she was going to die. It was her versus the mob and yet no one, nobody attempted to help her. I don't want to take the story out of context, but you know what this story needs? It needs some rednecks. Yep. I got any rednecks in the house? Just be proud, redneck people. You get some rednecks in that Bible, this is what happens. You want a man? I'm all the man you need. Somebody help me in this place. You get some rednecks up in the Bible, they're going to intervene. They'll come with shotguns and chewing tobacco and everything. They'll be like, get in my Jeep Wrangler, baby. We're getting out of here. But nobody helped her. I'm, tell, I'm telling you, God is my witness. I'm telling you that if I was there, I would have tried to help that woman. How many of you, how many of you are with me that you would have tried to do something, anything? Really? 
I think I think I just set you up <laughs> daily. We're surrounded by women and men just like her. They're defenseless. They're helpless. They're weak. They're losing their life. And we do nothing. Oh, how dare this old man and this husband go back inside and go to sleep? Don't we do the same thing? Now, we may not be able to see the beating physically, but spiritually we know that if they die in their sin or in their lifestyle, that they might end up at hell. But yet we, we do nothing. You don't have to go very far to find somebody that's hurting. You don't have to go very far to find somebody that, that needs Jesus. How dare we go back inside? How dare we not only shut the door, but lock it? How dare we? I'm telling you, right now in your workplace, somebody is being spiritually molested and you're not doing anything about it. I'm telling you that right now in your family, somebody is being raped by the enemy and you're not doing anything about it. I promise you that right now in this sanctuary, somebody is being beat down by the enemy and we're not doing anything about it. How dare we? You know what? I don't think we really have a burden for the lost like we should. I, I, on, because we don't want anybody to interfere with our schedules. So if that means that you might end up in hell, so be it. But don't interfere with my schedule or my lifestyle. If you, I don't even believe that we really comprehend the reality of hell. Because if we understood how bad hell was, we would have a greater desire to rescue those that might enter hell for eternity. Do you know that every six seconds somebody dies and goes to hell? Somebody just went to hell. Another one. gone. I don't think that we really have a burden. I think it's time that we start yelling rape. I think it's time that we start to intervene. I think it's time that you quit saying I'm praying for you and never even whispering a prayer. You know what? People tell me, people tell me all the time, I'm praying for you. I really don't believe very many people. You know what I've decided to do in my own life? And maybe you should do this as well. When somebody says any prayer, I just pray for them right there. That way I'm not guilty of promising something that I'm not going to commit to. There are people that are dying and they're being spiritually beat down. Oh, I'll pray, I'll, I'll pray for you. And then we go on as business as usual. We never even, we get the email on the prayer chain. It comes through, pray for so-and-so. They're going in for surgery. Many of you move it to your trash inbox. And never even whisper a prayer. I think you also need to quit waiting to get your friends an appointment with one of the pastors on staff at the church. Take with the, the authority that the Holy Spirit has given you. Lay hands on them. Speak life into them. Okay? You don't need Pastor Allen or Pastor Jeff or Pastor Daryl to come into their situation. All you need is the Holy Ghost to walk up in that situation and He can do all things. I think you need to quit waiting to have the right time to tell them about Jesus. This is the right time. The Bible says in Galatians 6.1, if, you know, if you're spiritual and you know somebody that's living in sin, then you have an obligation to tell them what they're doing is wrong. We must do 
something, we've got to yell rape. Stand with me this morning. One more question. Who else will die at the door? I read this and I thought to myself, who else will be just like that woman and will die at the door? I told you a minute ago, it kind of coincides with the third question I have, but we don't have to go very far to find some, somebody that needs help. I want you to do me a favor, not, not to make it awkward, but just to, to help me out. Would you look around the room at somebody? Just make eye contact with somebody. Let me ask you this. Of those that you just looked into their eyes, who in this sanctuary might be going through a spiritual battle? Who in this sanctuary might be fighting with everything they've got to get back to the master's house? See, let me tell you this. In this place, we are safe. But you better believe that the enemy has dispatched his demons to pound on the door, screaming out your name. Who in here feels like they can't take another step? Like all their strength is gone. I'm telling you, the woman, she was doing everything she could, screaming out, because she knew if she could get into the master's house, everything would be just fine. Who else will be allowed to die at the door? But not only that, will you die? How many times in ministry, not just student ministry, but church ministry, have we seen somebody come in and their life be radically changed? And then in a matter of moments, they're back thrown into that perverse crowd, being beat down by the enemy again. Yeah, right now, in this moment, we feel safe. But who of you feel like you're about to die? That you can't take it? Somebody feels defeated? You feel like your hands are on the threshold. You're close to experiencing life, but your spirit is weak and it's beaten. I'm telling you that as you advance in your walk with Jesus Christ, the enemy is going to attack you harder and greater. But I want you to know that your calling is greater than any attack of the enemy. Somebody help me in this house. I said your calling is greater. When you leave this place, there will be traps set. There will be crowds waiting for you. There will be temptation and turmoil and struggle. But you need to remind yourself, greater is he that is inside of me than he that's in the world. You need to remind yourself that your calling is greater than any alcoholic beverage. Somebody help me preach. Your calling is greater than any drug you can experiment with. Somebody help me preach. Your calling is greater than any love affair you try and have. Your calling is greater than the attack of the enemy. I am determined not to let you die at this door. I am determined that this church will not let you die with your hands on the threshold of your miracle. This morning you will not die. You will live. Somebody say amen. You will not die. You will not die. You will not die. You will not die.
you will live. You will live. Somebody hear me. You will not die. You will live. You felt like you can't exhaust one more scream. You feel like you can't cry out one more time. You feel like you've been abandoned and nobody's there for you. All you have to do this morning is say the name of Jesus. And you will not die. You will live. You will live. I'm going to invite you to the altar. Originally, I thought I'd have you walk through my door. But I'm going to invite you to this altar this morning with four responses to this message. The first one is this. You're a parent. That's not doing all that you should do with your children. You're a parent that is not doing all that you should or all that you could be doing to protect your child from the attacks of the devil. The Bible says that he's seeking whom he may devour. That means your baby girl. That means your little son. That means your grandsons or granddaughters. This is a team effort raising a child. But if you're not doing all that you should be or could be doing, this altar response is for you. The second one is this. You have pushed somebody into a struggle. You have pushed somebody into doing something they should not have done. You pushed somebody into doing something that they never wanted to do, but you kept pushing. Or you're the one being pushed. And you just want deliverance and freedom. You want to stand up for what you know is right and quit being pushed around by the crowd. The third response is this. You are guilty of not intervening as a Christian because you know someone that has been or is being spiritually beaten by the enemy and you're not doing anything about it. I'm telling you, if you know somebody that is losing this battle, you, through the power of the Holy Ghost, ought to rescue them. You ought to walk into that situation with all the boldness you need. Cast out the devil. Rebuke the enemy. Plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Grab somebody by the hand and say, I will not let you die. You will live through Jesus. Come on, somebody. Help me. The fourth one is this. You are determined to live and not die. You are determined that no all of hell can be against you, but you will not fall. You will not give in. You have promised to put Jesus as the priority in your life, and you will you are determined not to die, but to live through Jesus. And you're also determined to let others live too. If you fall in any one of those four categories, I want you to meet me in this altar just for a moment. I'm going to pray over you. Come on, you've got to be honest with yourself here. We all need to take a little self-inventory check of where we are and just be honest. There are some students in this room. You heard this message preached in September a little bit differently, but you've heard it preached earlier. But still, there are some people in your life that you need to cut ties with. Come on, keep coming. Press in tight. Press in tight. Keep coming. Come on, press in. Come on, press in. your hands to the heavens. The remainder of you in this sanctuary, stretch your hands in the direction of these people.
to the altar, this isn't a confession of guilt. This is a confession of help. Meaning I can't do this on my own. Now, you know, when we have altar services, normally the pastor or the speaker will walk around and lay hands on people. And I'm not afraid to do that. But what I feel in my spirit also is that some of you still standing back here, there are people that you love and people that you're related to in this altar. You need to be with them right now. You need to be with that person that's in this altar. If you came with your family or somebody that you you are in a relationship with or you love, you need to grab hands with them right now. Come on, make contact with somebody. Come on. Come on, your family's coming. You're not on this on your own. You're not in this by yourself. Now... I need some prayer team members, Sammy. That if there's any people in here that doesn't have somebody with them, we need to stand with them. We're not in this by ourselves. We're in this together. The family of God. We're in this as a church together. We will not die, but we will live. We will experience freedom through Jesus Christ. Come on. If you don't have somebody holding your hand or touching your shoulder, would you lift your hand in this altar real quick? Look at these hands. Somebody come stand with them. Come on. Somebody come stand with them. Don't let them face this battle by themselves. Somebody come stand by this lady right here. These two ladies right here. Somebody stand right here. There you go, Mom. There's a gentleman right here. I need a man to come stand with this gentleman right here. Come on. Somebody come over there. Thank you, Kevin. Here we go. Come on. Sing it again. of our sins and that we would 
we would see our wrong enough to apologize to those people that we have pushed away from God. Lord, I pray for those that are being pushed, that they've had enough this morning, that they're tired of peer pressure. You know, peer pressure doesn't just take place when you're in middle school or high school, but that they are tired of the pressure of their peers, and they're ready to stand up on their own two feet through the power of God and say, you know what, I don't need to be involved in this anymore. Lord, I pray that you move in Jesus' name. God, I pray for every one of us that are guilty of not intervening on the behalf of people that need Jesus. May we have a greater burden for the lost. May we have a greater desire to see people saved. Lord, we may not know what to say to them. We may not have all the vocabulary in place. But may we be obedient to open our mouths and tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. Your word tells us in Revelation 12, 11, that we can overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the words of our testimony. So let us find those that are hurting and helpless and defenseless and weak and tell them about Jesus. I pray for every person in this place that we would live and not die. That we would experience a relationship with Jesus that would transform us forever. We will live because you died for us. I pray, Lord, that we would find freedom in you and that from this moment on, our lives would never be the same again. If you declare it with me, would you put your hands together and applaud the Lord? Come on. Somebody shout unto God this morning. Hallelujah. 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 Those of you in this altar, you can keep praying. As you're dismissed, I want you to hug somebody. Love on them and tell them that you're with them and you're on their team and you're on their side. And that you've got their back. May you have a great day. God bless you and he loves you. So do we.